So, Sophie, tell say, I mean, what is the difference in what is the difference? We can see the difference, but why are the two of the most famous Taiwanese artists of their generation, mm. born in 61s around there, mm. talking about such, um, I don't know, heartfelt, difficult mm. uh, social issues? One set in a leper colony and the other in a mental asylum with people chained together. I mean, you could hardly... You know, mm. go more marginalised than these two topics. Mm. Mm. Is it an accident or is it...? Um, well, um, I think, well, both, both are of the generation where they experience the effects of martial law and yeah. I think that's important to point out because, you know, it was quite a severe period of, of repression. Mm. Um, I think... Uh, uh, Chang Chen Shi, who's done the Chain series and the Chinatown series, is looking at it from a slightly different perspective, um, almost as an outsider. And of course, he's had that long period outside of yes. Taiwan. He's been based in New York for, um, I think, over a decade. He's a magnum photographer, so he was picked up by this very prestigious photographic agency and has been living in New York and now living in Austria with his wife and children. So he's, he's, I think, looking at these issues um, pretty much, you know, as an outsider. He started the Chain um, series in the early 90s mm. uh, when he was working for the Seattle Times and it was originally a kind of journalistic kind of a project that he was doing for the Seattle Times, which then um, sort of became a much larger project. Um, and I think now he's just finished it. He sort of announced at the opening that this it's is the end, end, end of <laughs> it because he feels like he's been chained to the chain for so long. Yeah. Um, so, but I think Chen Jie uh, Ren here Who's at the gallery, mm. he um, has lived in Taiwan throughout his life. Um, his father was a KMT soldier, so he came from, mm. you know, the Waisheng um, uh, family. Um, and I think he's, he also, well, actually both of them do, and I don't mm. know if this is something we need to dwell on, but I mean, they both suffer from quite severe depression as well. Mm. So, you know, I think, I think there's... you can tell that yeah, yeah. in their personages yes, as well yeah. as in the work. Yeah. yeah. And mm. I think um, Chen Che Ren upstairs here um, is very much looking at, interested in, he's always been interested in Taiwan's history. So a lot of his work um, looks at the effects of whether it's the Japanese period or the KMT period. Um, and the impact is it is still having today. He talks about the post-Cold War mentality that still um, endures today in terms of um, well, global politics, US's, the USA's involvement in, ta in Taiwan, um, uh, selling armaments and all the rest. Um, but, you know, and then Taiwan-China issues. So he still feels very strongly that there's a, a, a kind of climate um, of repression still mm. um, and he's he's explored that in another work perhaps more overtly um, 
the Empire series where he it's based on when he was actually trying to leave Taiwan um, to go to the States for an exhibition opening. He'd been invited and the US um, oh, yes, consulate refused His him visa. a Why? visa because they thought he, he was actually wanting to mm. stay. So he was, it's that sense of kind of humiliation, I mm. suppose, that a lot of Taiwanese feel when they're... Um, you know, regarded as, as sort of, you know, second class or still a developing country when mm. it's still very much a, a, when it's a developed, much more of a developed mm. country than many people think. So um, I think the social issues, though, I think it's a, a personal, a personal connection with, both um, of them. with yeah. society, with, yeah. with people. There's a very strong empathetic Mm -hmm. um, I think aspect to their Definitely, work. Definitely, they both feel very deeply. And mm. then to go back to that performance uh, that I opened up in China, uh, when the, uh, the Chinese artists who were who used performance later, you said, than the period you talked about, because that was a protest against repression in some ways. Uh, you know, the early performances where they use their bodies. I think it's interesting to talk about that a bit. It's very different to what we're talking about here. Or if you like, if you prefer, talk about um, the Chinese and social issues. Yes. Well, I think that um, for the, if you go back again to the beginning of the unofficial art movement, um, and I'm talking about self-expression, but there was also a real keen desire to speak about political repression. Mm -hmm. So social issues weren't really, weren't really the way that it was framed, it was more political. Mm -hmm. It was more mm -hmm. about ideology and politics. Um, and as time has passed, Chinese artists and, and the way that people discuss politics and life and everything else in China has become um, more, on the one hand, there's, a, there's more suppression of free speech now than there was in the 80s. The, mm. the 1980s were far more vibrant, more open, mm. um, and m people were able to discuss a lot of, of things that they can't discuss now. On the other hand, they can go into the particular, they can go into the social issues now, they can discuss, for example, to a certain point, pollution, they can discuss to a certain point, corruption. You can't actually mm. finger, you know, yeah. it's, it's, all very, it's all very tricky. But basically, you can discuss these issues. And so the, the artists have become quite, in some ways, very socially mm. articulate mm. Um, and, and, and less politically, obviously mm. politically mm. engaged. I mean, we've all seen what happened with Guo Tian. I was just going to say, <laughs> tell, can yeah. you tell that sure. story? Yeah. You, you know the some artist who was... You mm. saw the artist, uh, the Chinese artist who was kicked back to Australia. Did you hear about that? He's, mm. He was, um, I met him in the late 80s in China. He was a young um, artist from a Guizhou province and he had come to Beijing, which was the center of the unofficial art scene. He had actually come to Beijing because he was at the Minorities Institute. He's from the Buyi tribe of, of Guizhou province. Um, and he was trained in palace painting, very fine painting uh, in, the, in, the, in the Minorities Institute. And then he became an unofficial painter, began going his own way. After Tiananmen, he married a, um, 
an Australian and came to Australia. Um, the marriage didn't last, but um, he became an Australian citizen, was here for a while, and then went back, like many Chinese artists have done, to China because the opportunities there for massive studios and, mm. and just generally great. I mean, it's really great to mm. be an artist mm. in China. You can, you can live cheaply. You can get a massive, you know, you can find a massive studio. It's, it's quite nice. So anyway, Guo Jian's been basing himself there. but. And his work, it's very interesting, has been, he's always done images from his career as a, as a, as a, as a, as a soldier, um, uh, various other things, he's done political pop. But as the uh, anniversary of Tiananmen, the 25th anniversary approached, he began getting more and more because he was there, he was on the streets you of Tiananmen. You were there too. I wasn't well, on the streets being shot at like, no. like well, Guojian, but you yeah. helped him. Mm. Yeah. No, not Guojian, I didn't you help didn't. him. Who no. did you help? Ho Jian was actually out on the streets and they were shooting in his direction. I mean, it was really hairy and he had been a soldier and now he was... So, so having, he was a protester. He was, a, yeah, yes. he was on the streets. And mm. so what happened then was that that actually, as with many people, it sits in you and it informs a lot of what you do and how you see the world. And Guo Jian, luckily has an Australian passport because finally in the lead up to Tiananmen he actually made a massive diorama of Tiananmen Square and covered it with I can't remember how many kilos of pork mince yeah, which he then allowed to rot um, slightly to his regret because he had to actually fumigate the studio <laughs> it was apparently unbelievably foul mm. but it was a comment on flesh on the streets it was it was very sharp. Um, mm. It wasn't something he was planning to exhibit, but the local police who, anyway, it was a long story, but bam, he, middle of the night before Tiananmen, uh, before the anniversary, <coughs> they came, they took him, they put him in a, a jail. You can keep somebody in a jail in, in, in China legally for about 15 days, I think it is, without charging them. Um, and basically they said, right, you have a visa irregularity, you're an Australian, bye. And so at the end of 15 days, they sent him back here. Mm. Um, there was quite a lot on the news. I yeah. mm. yes. Now listen, I'm the timekeeper. Oh, sorry. And no, I just kind I, of no, got no, off on I don't know, that was thing. important, but I'm just looking at the time, and I try to keep to it. It's, it's after 7.30 now. If, uh, and I, well, just 7.30, I think we should, I've got so much more that I, I and I forgot to use this. Um, I've got, <laughs> sorry, Sophie, but uh, I think it's, a, you know, the room is, we, we all project our voices nicely. I think if you want to, we must finish at eight. If you want to ask and have a drink and mingle a little bit and ask some questions, we have to move forward now. Or I can go on. And open it up. Uh, double happiness I could talk about, Linda's, you know, I mean, there are lots, lots of, um, of, of, of issues that we could still explore, but uh, we, there's, there's no time. I think we should open we should, it up yeah. for the audience. Yeah. Okay, so who's got a question? You've got to, you know, perform now. <laughs> <laughs> now! <laughs> <laughs> who's got a question? Uh, so, what about taking this? 
I want to pay tribute to Sophie, by the way, who mm. organises all these things, and we have so many of them, <laughs> and she's here, and we've got two staff members yes. here uh, tonight yeah. who have been working all day, I mean, you've all been working all day, but they, they I, I don't ask them to stay, so it's lovely to have, uh, you know, people who are so enthusiastic, mm. so thank yes, you maybe. to Sophie in particular, Mo, and to Emily for staying. Mm. Um, okay, who's got a question? Come on, Linda, you were pointing something. <laughs> no, I was just saying go. <laughs> there's something. There's someone. Thank you. I've not had the opportunity to travel to Taiwan, but I've always been fascinated by the fact that the, the major artworks and collections of uh, classical Chinese painting, etc., mm. were taken to Taiwan. Mm. Does this form a... Uh, could you comment on that? I'm just wondering, yes. does it form a... I don't know what, a, like a nucleus <laughs> of uh, national feeling in some mm. sense that... Um, Something has been well, it, both yeah. answer, I think. Well, I yes. think what's important, uh, presumably talking about the National Palace Museum yeah. as well as being the kind of major storehouse of all these um, wonderful works, that was actually the first museum that was built by Chiang Kai-shek too. So I think it's kind of testimony, testimony to their um, desire to kind of... Um, it impose, if you like, this cultural template, this Chinese cultural template over years. Mm. Over, and it's an amazing story. If you want to read the details about how they actually got the work to Taiwan from China, it's a phenomenal they? story. Oh, by stealth, by, <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> by boat, ultimately. <laughs> but uh, but it was. It's an amazing. I haven't. I haven't read the, the full thing, but it's a very interesting story. But I think. Um, what's interesting now is that after this, uh, the 1990s sort of Taiwanese nationalist period, there's now this, uh, on a, on at least on an official level, this embrace again of Chinese classical um, culture, particularly of, of uh, ink painting, calligraphy, um, and a lot of the exhibitions that are now being um, organised by institutions on both sides of the strait are very much focusing on this, on, on the sort of Chinese cultural tradition in a contemporary context sometimes. But, um, but yeah, the, the National Palace Museum is, is kind of the, the, the key, the central museum, I suppose, in terms of uh, historical... Um, For all Chinese. Uh, well, yeah, exactly. Yes. I mean, as Linda was saying, yes. that the mainland Chinese are, are coming over and they're thousands <laughs> to, to, to this museum and, and there's actually been some very interesting um, discussions that have very strong legal implications about whether an exhibition from the, the National Palace Museum in Taiwan could go to, Taib to, go to China. <laughs> And whether they receive the, the work back, you know, whether the Chinese might actually keep these treasures. I don't like and the chances. No. <laughs> Linda, you answer um, Yes, I, I actually, um, I've got a new book on Beijing. And mm. one of the things that I discovered in the research and that kind of goes through the um, end of the Qing dynasty and into the Republican period, the Japanese occupation and so on, is the continual plundering of imperial treasures that is so extreme beginning at the when the Qing dynasty was 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 falling apart and then the the uh, the rump 
palace. The Henry Pui was allowed to live in the back of the palace with some eunuchs and, 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 his, and his women and so on. Um, starting from then, eunuchs began to pilfer <laughs> so much that, um, I mean, we're talking about, we're not talking about the odd thing. Um, Mind-boggling amounts no. of, mm. of, of, of stuff was pilfered from the imperial collections. The collections of the emperors, great collectors like the Qianlong Emperor of the 18th century, who was one of the greatest art collectors in world history, um, with the, the amount of treasures were so amazing. And, and what as you read of this constant pilfering and, and then loss to fire and loss to this and that, what's absolutely astonishing is that there's that's all mm. there and they've still got despite a lot of destruction in the cultural revolution they've still got more than they can possibly show in beijing as well so when you think of this the actual heritage and then what we have we actually have a kind of a rump heritage mm. left mm. you know there's so much that's been destroyed but the Taiwan collection is is the the, the mm. collection. Mm. It's the jewel in the crown. It I is. Think the, it's the, they got the best mm. stuff. Mm. You know. Let's mm. see any other questions. Come on, guys. That led to an interesting dis mm. discussion. Here's a question here. Julia. Julia. Sophie. Um, uh, wait. Uh, wait for the master time, <laughs> dear, because you're going to speak <laughs> forward. Uh, I was just wondering. Like, Hold it up. Um, <laughs> about um, what you think about the, the whole class in China at the moment, um, like the disposable income kind of thing, because that shocks mm. me each time I go back, because, I mean, I've been going back and forth for the past three years, and every time, I mean, a Gucci shop pops up, or a Louis Vuitton sh shop pops up, and girl, there's people in there, and they're 16, they look like they're 16, or so young going in there. And I was wondering what you think, like, to them home means, because, mm. I mean, do they, because obviously they're happy enough in China, do you think it's more a sense of patriotism, or do they want to leave, or but, what is their sense mm. of home, because I'm not sure if they're just, not, it enforces a lot of patriotism, like China, in China they can live so luxuriously as mm. opposed to Australia or something. Mm. Did you hear the, hang on, did you hear the question, Dan? Yeah, yeah. okay. There's a, that's a really interesting question, yeah. and there's a number of facets mm. to this. One is that, um, that uh, those kids, the 16-year-olds, 99%, um, I would say with certainty, is that their parents are planning to send them overseas for university, possibly send the family overseas so that they can get a second domicile yeah. and a, uh, a bolt hole. Mm. Um, so this is the people who you would see in the Gucci shops who are that young, they're probably being groomed for uh, overseas universities and eventual mm. moving out. At the same time, the nationalist patriotic education is such that um, they would be very proud of their Chinese heritage even as they were planning to physically abandon the country. <laughs> You know, and, and you can look at, just to bring it very quickly into the Chinese art market, what's very, very interesting is that the absolute most that anything has ever been spent on, on a single thing was a, a Ming Dynasty teacup tea mm. you know, with, with chickens on it. There's only like 19 of these cups in the world. There's only about four in private collections. A rich, rich mainland collector with no kind of culture behind him. He was just, you know, one of these... Um, 
people who made a lot of money with business. Um, and now he's an art collector and has opened a museum. He drank from the cup as when he bought it at Sotheby's or wherever it was <laughs> and oh. just shocked China yeah. as well. Yeah. Shocked most people in China who said he was vulgar, vain, crude, yeah. risk-breaking, this thing. But that was 36 million US dollars for one little teacup. Yeah. Now, hmm. the next biggest that was ever spent um, also this, this past six, seven months was $23 million for... Um, Zhang Fan, um, uh, yeah, Fan, uh, no, Zhang Fan, oh, uh, Zhi, I think it is, yes, uh, Zhang Fan Zhi, um, a painting called The Last Supper. But, so basically, with China and the way that they look at their culture in terms of buying it and consuming it as art, the very top stuff is all the ancient things. Mm. Those are the high prestige, because mm. in China you don't just buy what you love, you buy what's prestige as well. Mm. The second highest prestige, don't be fooled by the Zheng um, example, the second highest prestige are the Republican, the great, uh, uh, like, um, Qi Bai Shi and mm. Zhang Daqian and all these great painters from the pre-Mao period, some of whom lasted into mm. it. Early yes. the 20s, that yeah. sort of period. And so there's mm -hmm. this thing about cultural consumption. You've got your Gucci bag, you've got your Zhang Daqian, <laughs> and then you get a home in Australia. Mm. You know, so it's a very complex oh, thing. If you give mm. that money to your children, what do the parents think of it? The parents think, like when you relate it back to home, because is it... Look talking there. When you relate yeah. it back to home because is it, it has it got a national pride to it? I mean, because outside the Gucci shops, yes. you've got all the beggars and all the mm. people yeah. starving mm. practically, and you have to pass them inevitably to get to the shop. But so. you don't have to see them. Mm. That's, that's, that's the way it works. I think, though, there is an aspect, I think Julie's right, though, there is an aspect of national pride in the sense that yeah. ch um, China's economic progress yeah. and that yeah. celebration of, yes. you know, mm. consume, we consume, consume. We can do this. We now yeah. have the money yeah. to do it. Yeah. I mean, it's not only in China, mm. as we know. And, and that's actually part <laughs> of the, the issue with Taiwan and Hong Kong that I mentioned earlier. And it also extends to Thailand and a whole lot of mm. other places that are preferred destinations of, of, of Chinese tourists, is that there's this huge backlash against the Chinese because they come with this, we come from the great country. Mm. Our home is the great civilization. Mm. And what are you, a bunch of people on a beach, you know, mm. Thailand, etc. Mm. And they treat people, there's a huge cultural backlash in a lot of these places because the Chinese carry with them an arrogant mm. sense of home mm. with them um, mm. while at the same time scrambling for homes everywhere else mm. so that they can put <laughs> yeah. holes. So it's a very complex <laughs> and interesting <laughs> issue. Mm. Guys, last yeah. question, I think. It's probably quarter two, eight, yeah? So one more question. Come on. There we are. Sorry, I'll let you answer this one. Yeah, no, that's so Thank sorry. you very much. Um, not so much a question, but a comment. I'm from China, so I'm on your side. <laughs> <laughs> I don't take sides. The comment is about uh, what you said. So basically, people how they feel in Taiwan about mm. the Japanese period. That's a very interesting because of we, you know, grow up this way. Uh, but I do know. I guess uh, um, nobody like your homeland uh, been invaded. So I knew, mm. you know, for example, in Taiwan in the 70s, uh, this famous Chinese writer Zhang Aiding's oh, yes. husband uh, was a 
he cooperated with Japanese in Shanghai mm. during the war. Mm. So after the war, he was chased by Chinese government and he went to live in Japan mm. after the war. So he lived there quietly, secretly, and for a long time. So in 1970s, when he first time he, he visited uh, overseas, it was to Taiwan and to I think invited by maybe a small group of academics there mm. to give a lecture because he's a, a scholar. But immediately, as soon as he showed his face in Taiwan, he was really called a big criticism. Criticism. Mm. He mm. didn't mm. conduct his seminar. He was uh, he quickly went back to Japan. Mm. Why? Like Why do you is, think? I think Taiwan is. Uh, Maybe some of them feel as strongly. I see. Sure. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's you. You can't simplify. And I mean, it's a very mixed feelings. But um, but I think in terms of Taiwan on a national scale and in terms of Taiwan's development as a as a nation state that people feel that the Japanese contributed in those early days compared to the, the early days of the KMT, which was, you know, the 2 by 28 massacre where they slaughtered, the KMT slaughtered a lot of Taiwanese. Yeah, um, sure so, of, and, yeah. And the original reaction yeah. to, the, to the Japanese defeat was jubilation in Taiwan. Mm. It mm. was complete mm. happiness. Mm. Mm. It was just because the KMT were so, so lousy yeah. that they began to get nostalgic. Mm. And also, mm. remember, I learned that from a Taiwanese artist. I had, I always thought they would have seen the Japanese as colonialists and oppressors and so on. Here I am sitting across a dinner table um, with a Taiwanese artist whom I've known for a long time, who said, no, Jean, you've got it wrong. Mm. The Taiwanese, coming back to what Sophie said, actually um, were grateful to the Japanese mm. for what they uh, did. So mm. I was surprised, and that's why I brought it up. Mm. Guys, mm. we're going to have to stop. I think uh, we should really, they have uh, expertise that could have gone on forever. <laughs> Thank you so much. Let's mm. just give them a good Thank you. <laughs>